0: The facts, in a talent market that is more competitive and less understood than any other time in history, it's the facts that matter. Welcome to Start Smart, the podcast that delivers the facts, the latest research and data on the key issues and opportunities facing talent acquisition and HR professionals. Welcome to Start Smart, the podcast about the facts and talent acquisition, the latest research and findings about this crazy field of recruiting. I'm Peter Weddle, the CEO of TA Tech. And I'm Shalia Gray, the Global
1: Lead of Talent Acquisition at Quadiat.
0: We are delighted to have you here. We're going to talk about a fascinating report uh, today, a Mercer report entitled The Rise of the Relatable Organization the global talent trends 2022 study that they've done before we get started on talking about it. First, I'd like to tell you a little bit about our sponsor talent.com the solution to finding talent your way work with the fast growing tech savvy company dedicated to making the search for candidates easy. Are you looking to fill one job? How about a thousand jobs? Do you need a way to integrate your recruitment technology? Talent.com can find the answers for your business, and they can do it on time and on budget. Start growing with talent.com. Okay, so again, the report we're going to take a look at today uh, is called The Rise of the Relatable Organization, uh, the Global Talent Trends 2022 Study from Mercer. Uh, It's a survey of 11,000 folks in 16 different geographic areas and covering 13 industries. And they provided some interesting insights on these respondents. Uh, In the C-suite respondents or among the C-suite respondents, 22% were in high growth companies. I I don't know what the definition of high growth is, but certainly it means that they are in successful uh, enterprises. Uh, among employees, 45% were working remote, 30% were working in a hybrid situation, and 24%, so fewer than a quarter, were working on-site. What I found most interesting was the, about the, their comment about HR leaders. When they defined HR leaders, they went on to say that these people had spent most of their career in business and recently moved to HR. So that's an interesting cohort of the HR executive population. Okay, finding number one. Here we go, Shalila. Life as we have known it has expired. You know, it's pretty obvious to everyone uh, if you are in touch with the world at all. Uh, The workplace and those who are employed there have changed dramatically, profoundly, Uh, And uh, I think the, the conventional wisdom is those changes are permanent. And that's all happened in the last two or three years. And Mercer argues that to sustain themselves in this kind of environment, organizations have to become more relatable. That's their term. And as I read the report, I think what relatable means is that organizations have to be more relevant and more connected to the people they want to recruit and uh, recruit and hire for their workplace. Um, in fact, Mercer actually puts it this way, quote, organizations today are expected to have a heart, end quote. <laughs> so, uh, So what does that mean? Well, on the strategic level, they report, here's your first fact, 41% of C-suite executives say that the pandemic helped them realize that continued success in business Requires a complete reset around work, the workforce, and the workplace. So, the good news is that better than four out of 10 of these C suite executives understand that the world of work has changed and they need to adjust as well. The bad news is that fewer than half of all C suite executives realize that the world of work has changed and they need to adjust. What do you think, Julie? Is this are we talking about a real paradigm shift here in corporate behavior, or uh, you know, are we going to revert to to
1: old practices the minute the share price uh, gets endangered? Um, what I would have said a couple of months ago is I think you're talking about a paradigm shift uh, that's going to last right? Um, because, you know, it, the, a lot of this goes back to the very first podcast we had when we talked about um, how we we're in a different situation, where it's moved from um, employer employers winning to employees winning. And it's, it, you know, it's a different paradigm shift. I do think that there was an aha moment with most corporations around heart when we went through the pandemic. But I also am old enough to remember when we also had this kind of aha moment around work-life balance, right? Uh, organizations started to understand the con- concept of work-life balance. They started to put in programs that work about work-life balance. But we find and when we went through the pandemic that we really had not invested enough in work-life balance, right? So I, I do believe that organizations are taking an aha moment, um, a much needed moment to think about the employee, employees as people Um, as caregivers, as family members, and all of that. I think that they are, I've seen a rise in providers on the wellness side. And I mean, things around um, coaching for mental health and all those. I think our benefit structures are now paying for tele-visits. So I do think that some things have changed. My concern is, will it stay a priority? Is it a flavor of the moment? Because we need to address it or will it continue to be a priority over time? I think that will that will time will tell on that.
0: You know, I think that's absolutely right. The report does cite another fact, uh, just 26% of employers which is down from 30% in 2019, just 26%. So fewer uh, just barely more than a quarter of employers plan to reduce headcount if there's a downturn in the economy. Well, we now know that there's going to be a downturn in the re- in the economy. And and I'm a little cynical because I, I also can remember to the past. I remember back in 1997 when there was a similar supply-demand mismatch like the one we have right now in terms of talent. And that led to the McKinsey & Company report, The War for Talent. Uh, and everybody was all uh, hot and bothered about, oh, we need to really do things differently for talent acquisition. We need to prioritize it more. And then the dot-com bubble burst, and we went right back to laying off people by the millions. So I, I'm a little, as I say, I'm a little cynical that <laughs> that just barely a quarter of employers are going to reduce headcount. I think it's going to be a whole lot more than that.
1: I think what, what I've seen now, I, I subscribe to some of the layoff reports. I've seen some of the software startup-type companies lay off. And then I'm I'm out there in LinkedIn, and I see some of the bigger ones. I believe Twitter just did a layoff. I saw a couple of of uh, testimonials from people um, on the Twitter side talking about losing their jobs. What I what I find very interesting now is that people are very honest when they lose their jobs. Um, people are also caring about the community. I've seen leaders out there saying, "I've lost my job. My job is to help my team find, you know, positions and stuff." So I, I do believe that that, that reduction and downturn is coming. Um, you know, people may be optimistic if they want. I believe that some of the things that are in play in the economy right now are going to to force us because I do believe that in some cases uh, we flattened out. And then we um we we ramped up very, very steeply. And as a result, people are now trying to prioritize, and that may mean um, reducing headcount.
0: Well, another sure sign that things are are gonna go downhill before they go uphill uh, is that, you, know, you mentioned Twitter. Uh, there was also a news report that Twitter laid off a third of their recruiting team. Yes, you know, yes, and that's unfortunately that's what happens once pe- once organizations start to uh, start to lay people off. They the the C suite says, well, you know what? If we're laying people off, we don't need to recruit anymore. We don't need to recruit nearly as much, and you start to see these draconian cuts in the recruiting function.
1: I think people should learn from the mistakes. I mean, I remember the twenty 2010- ten when there was a, a really downturn in the economy, and there were many people got rid of the whole recruiting workforce, just got rid of everybody. And um, when, when stuff started to pick back up, because there was some stimulus things put out there, you know, banks uh, consolidated. And then we did a big push in the auto industry to get rid of clunker cars and everything in the US. And then what happened was there was an immediate ramp up. And people weren't prepared because they had not done a knowledge transfer and they were without recruiters. Uh, you know, people, we're, you know, I'm, I'm in the recruiting function. And whenever we hear downturn in economy, it's ding, ding, ding on the recruiter side to say, maybe I should go look for another job. I think organizations need to understand whenever there's a downturn, if you're a good industry, there's going to be an upturn. And usually that tide moves very, very quickly and it's harder to bring back recruiters than it is. You know, when you you say it's so easy to get rid of them, it's harder to bring them
0: back. Well, that's especially true even right now. I mean, there are a lot of employers screaming that they don't have enough recruiters. uh, And I I think it's not because recruiters are uh, moving from one organization to another. That's largely been the dynamic and the great resignation. I think many people, many recruiters are just leaving the profession altogether. Uh, and, and going into other fields,
1: I think some of them are. I think people are going into the advisory functions with some of the startup kind of organizations. Some of them have moved into the to the uh, software side, you know, because there's new products that are dropping up every day in the recruiting space. Everything from the concierge pieces, the chat bots, you know, all those pieces. I see recruiters moving into those spaces. I see recruiters also going over to the RPOs. You know, the RPOs or operations, a lot of times they're back-end uh, functions. I see recruiters going over there. And then I also see recruiters, you know, starting their own stuff, you um, you know, sourcing training and all kinds of fun stuff. The one thing I always feel about my function, it's why I love my function, is that we move at the speed of the market. We're adaptable. We're knowledgeable. We're reading those articles. We're watching the market. Uh, ears with the candidates to understand how to talk to them and what's going on. So I think, you know, we hear in the beginning when things need to change and we figure out a way to adapt. Fair enough.
0: Fair enough. And and I do want to acknowledge, uh, based on some of the other data that Mercer published, uh, that that employers... At least some employers are making a genuine effort to become more relatable, to use their term. For example, 48% of the employers who responded to the survey said that they were going to invest in an internal talent marketplace this year, 2022. Um, and almost as many, 47%, said that they were going to invest in career management tools. And and I, I, this has been one of my soapboxes for a long time. I, I think most people come into the workplace with absolutely no career self-management knowledge or tools. They don't know how to manage their own career. So if that's what that phrase meant in their report, that employers were going to give their employees the tools to manage their own career, which might mean that they were going to leave the organization, but it could also mean they they might come back, then I I think that's really uh, a smart HR investment.
1: On on that piece, I I think that that Okay, so I think most of us are doing pulse surveys of our employees. We're also doing exit interviews with voluntary separation. And it's always been in one of the top two, why people leave organizations is called for career development, opportunity, whatever. I think organizations are getting smart. They've always said you own your career. But that's not always true, right? Because you have to tell a manager when you apply for a job, depending on your policy, all of that. But I think people are trying to make that reality happen, which is build your career inside of us. We're going to help you think about career paths for your, for your, for your, for you. We're going to think about ways to do um, stretch assignments internally. Um, And that's just because (laughs) many times it's because we can't backfill a job in another group. And so we'll do a stretch assignment to take what resources we have and spread it a little bit thinner. Um, But I think this case, when they're talking about this investment in these career tools, it's because selfishly we want to keep you and we want to show you that we appreciate you in ways that matter.
0: Well, that's certainly the definition of a relatable organization. So let's hope there's more of that. Finding number two, uh, I would characterize as the emperor has no clothes. Despite an ongoing concern about the lack of talent in the job market, most company executives, well, maybe that's unfair, too many company executives seem unable to grasp the importance of investing in their talent acquisition function in general and talent technology in particular. So here's what the report said. Here are the facts. 66% of the executives responding to the survey said they face a labor shortage crisis. So better than, oh, well, two thirds of, of the respondents recognize that there's something going on in the labor market. 55% said they have difficulty, quote, hiring the right talent at the right price quickly enough. Uh, And, you know, to me, that's a red flag because when I hear hiring right talent at the right price, uh, I think that uh, these executives are falling back on the old axiom that this is really a compensation problem. If we throw a little more money at the at the problem, at the lack of talent, uh, it's all going to go away. Uh, and, And I think that's just naive.
1: What do you think? Well, a couple of things. One, I do believe, you know, there is this labor shortage problem out there. I do agree. I, I believe that salaries and compensation has jumped quickly. So it's like the first time I went to the grocery store and saw I could buy a chicken cheaper than I can buy eggs now. Um, you know, the, 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 the Delta has increased very rapidly. So when they say at the right price, I believe they're looking at um, post, uh, a pre, pre-COVID You know, salary ranges and saying, I want to get the same thing now, even though there's a labor shortage. And I think that because it's a talent market, talent is driving up the price of talent at a rate that we've never seen before. So I think that's one of the reasons they're having difficulty. And you remember, there's always this thing about bringing in new talent higher than existing talent, right? We call that compression. But that's what has to happen. When you go to the market, even though you know, Bob and Susie have been in, in this job for five, 10 years. You have a, you know, managers have an angst about bringing in a new hire, higher than the existing workers. But in this marketplace, that's that's a decision you're going to have to make.
0: And all of that I agree with. But my, my concern is that uh, even if you get the price right, you're still likely to fall behind the pack in terms of meeting your talent acquisition needs, because I would argue that the problem isn't just a comp problem. It's a comp problem plus a value proposition problem plus a tools problem. You know, all of those things combined is what puts an employer behind the pack in terms of their ability to, to recruit new employees.
1: Here's what I would say. I'm a part of Career Crossroads, and we did a Pulse survey doing COVID. We did a couple of them. One of them was to a recruiters asking about things that they were going through during COVID. And many of our members said that they got more resources than they'd ever had before. Okay. And that showed you how we had been in a drought for years in terms of applicant tracking systems, in terms of automation, in terms of all those technology things that we needed to be competitive. And all of a sudden, when things became um, uh, virtual organizations were willing to invest because they had to for other parts of the business invest in those for TA. Now, am I saying TA has everything it needs? Absolutely not. There's a lot of things that we still don't have that we want to have um, because now we see it's possible. But I'm going to say that many of us caught up quicker than we would have if there had not been COVID.
0: I I also think that uh, you know, during a period where there is more money, more investments flowing into talent acquisition. That's a good thing. Uh, and, and we know that it's happened before. We've seen, as I mentioned earlier, we saw that uh, back uh, when the war for talent came out in 1997. Uh, so in the late nineties. Uh, but that, that commitment is ephemeral. It comes and it goes. Uh, And I think that's not a healthy way for an organization to manage its talent. I don't think that is the hallmark of a relatable organization. So I I think there's another task that we in talent acquisition have to take on during this period. We certainly want to uh, make all the smart investments, uh, uh, improve our processes and practices, uh, improve our comp structure, all of that stuff. But I think we also want to embark on an educational campaign. We have to we have to educate the chain of command in the fact that this is a this is not a smart way to run a railroad, you know, to to this feast and famine approach to supporting talent acquisition. If you really want to be a company that over time is able to attract the very best and brightest, you've got to do this on a steady state basis, and you have to keep at it. That's to almost become a part of your brand that you really are going to have a state-of-the-art
1: talent acquisition function? Uh, here's what I'm going to say. Uh, when you buy a house, you create a budget for the maintenance of the house. You know that a roof lasts you 20 years. Your water heater lasts a certain period of time. So if you're smart, you're investing in today, but you're putting money away because you know the certain repairs are going to need to be done. With, with talent acquisition, the issue is that we have a lot of variables at stake. Right. So so I believe part of why we can't get what we need enough times is because of workforce planning. That is really the, the, the that's the gorilla on the floor. Who owns it? I, I personally believe that it's, a, it's that finance owns it um, with an input from H.R., with an input from a, a variety of functions. But finance owns it because it goes with the business strategy. We are an input in H.R. because we know retirement eligibility. We know historical turnover and all of those things. So if we could get it down to more of a science around the maintenance of our house, then I think that finance organization we could hold them accountable for ensure we're funding correctly. But unfortunately, we can't do that. So you know, to you know, as I look at my organization, for example, we tripled, tripled the number of hires in Q1 than I did for all of 2019, all of 2019. I tripled it in one quarter. Was that planned? You know, part of it is replacement. Part of it is addition. You know, when you think about the new projects coming on, you got to think about, okay, do we have historical skills? Do we need to buy? Do we need to rent? All those things. We don't necessarily think about that when it comes to TA. So it's always variable variables that make us need more and need it very, very quickly and the organization can't stretch for it. So I believe that the, 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 the elephant on the floor is workforce planning. And there are very few organizations who get it down to a science. I did work for an organization where it was a science. When you got a project, you had to have the amount of heads that went to that project, the amount of heads you had to bake in um, and a head was either full-time, part-time, college intern, whatever, it was a head. Right. You couldn't say, well, I'll sneak it in other ways. You had to you had to fund those projects. And if you went over your projects, then you had to fund the resources in the support functions to help you with your overage. You know, and there was no forgiveness and you had a budget, Um, but without that discipline in an organization always getting forgiveness, then I think we always run behind. We're always running behind the bus, never quite catching up. I do a report here monthly that says, here's how many new requisitions I've got. And here's how many requisitions I've closed. I've yet yet, yet to melt, make the delta, make it make it meet, because I'll soon get to a number that's almost the last month, and then I'll get like 40 new recs the next month, right? So I'm always chasing the bus. And as long as TA is always chasing the bus, we'll never get all the money that we need. Well, interestingly
0: enough, in the report uh, from
1: Mercer, the number one
0: priority among the HR respondents was, quote, Improving workforce planning. So there you go. Uh, maybe maybe organizations are starting to wake up to the requirement for that or the need for that. Okay, last finding: workers are saying, "Stop the world, I want to get off." You know, the the report talks about the importance of what they call quote good work for today's employees. Uh, I I I struggled uh, to understand just what they meant by that. Frankly, uh, it it sounds good. I mean, you've got this great resignation going on, and and maybe giving them quote what good work is uh, will help them feel more appreciated, more satisfied, uh, and thus less than less likely to attrit. But to my way of thinking, good work isn't sticky. The compensation, for example, is sticky and and it often is what's used to induce people to stay in the organization. But that kind of stickiness wears off. Uh, I, I I you know I I they the report did cite that um, the employees in the U.S. said that the top three drivers of work satisfaction, what they would define as good work, were quote work that fulfills me quote work. Uh, that enables me to feel valued for my contributions and quote, this is interesting, a manager who advocates for me. But then Mercer went on to cite the Good Work Standards Framework from the World Economic Forum, which had stuff like fair pay and, equi- and integrity, safety and well being, and so forth. And I think it left out the key building block of employee satisfaction, and that is the employer's commitment. To establishing and maintaining the conditions for employee success, I think that's how uh, that's how you get the good work for an employee is you give them the conditions for them to achieve success. What, what do you think? What is what is good work in your view?
1: So for me, you know, I, I there's one class I will always remember in my in my career, and that was when I took um, sociology, and they talked about Maslow's hierarchy of needs right? So the very basic needs is safety and security, right? So for me, good work says that I have a safe and secure environment in which to work. And to me, more and more, that means an environment where lack of bullying, all those things that I never thought about when I thought about safety and security. I thought about, you know, getting to the parking lot safely, or, you know, there not being an OSHA violation, all of that. More and more, I think about an environment where I feel safe as an employee to be who I am, right, um, and to, to, to perform at my best work. When I think about good work, I think about very few surveys really ask me about good work. They ask me about performing, do I have the tools that I need or whatever. They don't ask me if I, if I feel like I'm doing my best work every day right? Or if I'm getting assignments that, you know, meet, meet the challenge for me. They don't really ask about that. They just want to know, are you okay? Thumbs up or thumbs down. When you get to the, the fact of, uh, you know, if you enjoy your work and the work means something to you, I think that's a very different place. And I have been places there and I recognize that I felt like I was my best because I felt like every day was a challenge that the bar was my own bar and every day I needed to be higher because the organization challenged me. Why? Because there is something to be said about working with smart people. Right. Smart people that challenge you to grow, smart people that, you know, challenge you to learn. Because when I worked in those environments, I wanted to learn what the business did to make money. Right. I I was I was working with peers in things that I had no clue. I'd never been exposed to. And they helped me understand it. And I I was excited to come to work every day, and I think I did my best there because I tried my hardest, right? That's when I felt like I was doing a really good job. And I'm going to say it wasn't always, when I say good work, it wasn't always um, work at my level. So there was administrative stuff I had to do, spreadsheets I had to fill out, reports I had to do, but... I saw the the greater good. I saw what it was correlated to because at the end of the day, those were reports that were read by managers. Those were, there was information that needed to go into the business. There was a correlation between it. I got challenged on my data, so I didn't know what was going on. So yeah, it was the administrivia, but it was administrivia that made a difference. So to me, when, I, when people talk about good work, that's the work that I feel I contribute the you know, I contribute the most to. Well, I do think that the Maslow hierarchy
0: is a great framework for trying to understand what good work is. Uh, you know that, as you pointed out, safety and security is the foundation level, and and then uh, physical well being is the next level up, and that, that's in my view that's compensation and benefits. Uh, and 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 then there is a, a social need working with your peers, as you just pointed out. And the top of the pyramid is fulfillment. And to me, you just described doing fulfilling work—work work that gave you a sense that you were doing something important, something that was valued, something that you could take pride in. Uh, and and I think every organization—I—I I, I don't want to get too off into the stratosphere here—but every organization should have. Um, as its cardinal direction trying to build a framework where uh, the stuff in the bottom of the pier of the maslow uh, pyramid those are table stakes you got to have those but what really differentiates the the most attractive organizations from an employment perspective are those that get you
1: closer to the top of the pyramid but uh, closer to to fulfillment and it's interesting you, you say that, but many people forget about those pieces. I mean, I've worked at c- companies where the safety and security of me as an employee was not was not of importance. And and I'm going to say the basics. For example, I worked in an organization where we did background checks and we made more exceptions than we didn't. And I and I and I, and I, I as, a, as a TA leader, I said, here's the deal you can make exceptions in any building but the one I reside in. (laughs) So if there is someone who's who's convicted of a a violent crime, they will not work in my building. They will, you can make any exception you want, except in my building, because (laughs) I will not have that. Um, So yeah, some, some organizations forget about why we do what we do. Well,
0: we have been talking about the Mercer Report Rise of the Relatable Organization, Global Talent Trends 2022 study. We've only scratched the surface. It's a wonderful report. You should definitely get it and take a look at it. It's just wonderful food for thought. Our next show is going to focus on a report from Lighthouse Research, Talent Acquisition Trends. It's a report that just came out. uh, And its subtitle is, not surprisingly, Hiring is More Critical Than Ever. But what really makes the report interesting and what we're going to jump into is how employers and candidates are evolving uh, in the current market, because that word evolution, it seems to me, um, is the is the key strategy for success going forward. Organizations need to adapt uh, and the organizations that evolve most effectively and in the most timely way are going to be most successful. So, Shalil, it's been great chatting with you once again uh, and uh, thanks to all of you who are listening in. We really appreciate your coming by and spending some time with us at Start Smart, the podcast that focuses on the facts. Thanks very much.
1: Have a great day.
0: That concludes this episode of Start Smart. Thanks very much for joining us and come back for our next episodes on the latest research that will help you shape your talent acquisition with the facts. See you then.